This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Hi, I'm Chip Walker. I'm head of strategy at Strawberry Frog. We're a movement marketing firm in New York City. What I love about content marketing as a producer of content I think it's really pretty straightforward to me that basically I get to sort of live in a world of ideas and creativity and get paid for it. That's basically it. Let's talk movement marketing. A movement is a brand's best friend, according to New York creative agency Strawberry Frog. They took a stand two decades ago to use creativity for good, looking for ways to do good in society by activating purpose-based brands with a movement. Coming up, you'll hear from head of strategy Chip Walker, who will offer insights into a new day in marketing when brands are exploring a deeper value than a sale. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business. Conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. Chip, thanks so much for joining the show. We're really happy to have you here in studio. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm Mark Rako, and um, I'm filling in as moderator today, uh, along with uh, our usual host, Amber Mundinger. Hi, Amber. Hi. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Chip, I would love, love, love to just start here. I'm not going to straight out ask you, where did the name Strawberry Frog come from? <laughs> but what I want to know is, how has the name Strawberry Frog become a useful or hindering commodity for you as you, as head of strategy, strategize how you build business in the company? I'd say not 99% it's been a huge asset, the name. It is unusual. It's very memorable. Uh, one of the great things is that, um, you know, I've been with Strawberry Frog for a while. So as a digital marketing sort of came to the fore and then social. Um, you know, we, we were a traditional creative agency, you know, initially, but as, as the digital revolution happened, everybody assumed for some reason that we were a great digital and social agency at the forefront of change. Um, we became that, but we got that yeah. assumption just because I think we had an unusual and sort of forward looking sort of name that sounded innovative. So it's been very helpful in, uh, in that way. I mean, I'd say the only downside, um, it's maybe it's not really a downside, but for example, we just did a giant research study on um, brand purpose and the, the degree to which consumers see brands as being purposeful. We did it with a firm called uh, the Reputation Institute. Mm -hmm. The reason we felt like we had to partner with them was because how much are you going to believe a really serious study coming from a company called Strawberry Frog? Right. I mean, hopefully you do, <laughs> and they. But but if you haven't heard of us, you you might think that it's like a, a little crazy. So, mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes we we do things like partner to kind of um, give our name a little extra oomph when needed. And you said that you guys originally started out as a traditional, more traditional creative agency, um, but 
you know, a huge part of your focus is movement marketing. Right. So can you explain that a little bit? Um, because originally when I heard the term, it's funny, I wasn't even thinking movement marketing from a cause standpoint. Quite frankly, I was thinking like fluid movement. Um, so would love to just learn a little bit more about how you guys evolved into movement marketing. Yeah, so the firm started uh, on the principle of, of movements. Um, it was started by my, my partner in the business, Scott Goodson. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, when he was living in Scandinavia several mm-hmm. years ago, that's where he started and he mo- ended up moving to New York and, and he and I met. But, uh, you know, in Scandinavia, there's um, kind of much more of a philosophical and societal approach to thinking about marketing and brands and and sort of the greater good mm-hmm. uh, always have been. I think the first client Scott had was the smart car. Mm. Uh you know which is all about uh you know the the environment right. and trying to you know keep the planet safe that kind of thing. That's where the idea of movement marketing I think first originated with Scott. He came over here. We ended up meeting. And, um, you know, the reason I said we were a traditional creative agency is because, you know, in the, say, the early mid-2000s, just about everybody was a – we didn't even think of the word right. traditional then. That's just, just that's what there agency. was. Yeah, yeah, we were a creative agency whose philosophy was about movements. Uh, and we've since then kind of morphed, and now we kind of are omnichannel. But to answer your question about movement and movement marketing, so uh, I think one misconception is that it's all about cause. Uh, Mm -hmm. It can be about cause, but it's not really CSR. That's sort of a – that lives in its own world. Uh, There can be some interlap, uh, overlap between between the two. But um, the way that I think about movements is um, two things. It's about giving a brand a higher purpose in the world. And then it's about activating people around that versus just messaging them around it. And often activating that at at a grassroots level. Um, so, so that's really it. It's kind of brand purpose activated. Now, mm-hmm. often a brand really has a purpose in the world that it operates at a higher, a much higher level. Think about brands like Patagonia, mm-hmm. Seventh Generation. Uh, I mean, that that's almost veers into being a little bit more about cause. Mm-hmm. Um, but other brands, you know, Google's about organizing the world's information. Um, that's their higher purpose. Fair. And it's important, yeah. but it's not really CSR. Right. Um, so does that kind of give you a flavor? Yeah, no, that's super helpful um, and definitely gives me a flavor. How would you say like in terms of um, the types of brands that you're working with and the clients that are coming to you, like how do they – how do you approach that higher purpose with them if you're helping them to really – evolve that? It's a great question. So I don't know if uh, this is sort of drifted into your world yet, but uh, in our world, there seems to be a brand purpose craze going on among marketers. Yeah, it seems like it's a, I hate to say the word trend because you should have a brand purpose (laughs) in general, but yeah. But there's a craze going on. Everybody's like purpose, purpose, purpose. They're hiring consultants, uh, getting a purpose. um, And often when they come to us, clients have been through a couple of three purposes. And Hmm. one of the issues with with purposes is that they're often hard to activate. By nature, they tend to be lofty and maybe a little vague. Right. Uh, You know, building greater lives and communities or something, which is fantastic. But yeah, what do you do with it? So to just give you an example of uh, a client, uh, this is for uh, a large uh, bank that we work with called SunTrust. Um, And um, they came to us several years ago and they developed this purpose called Lighting the Way to Financial Well-Being. 
um, which you know sounds great, and it sounds yeah. like a good thing for them how, to do. How do I how do I do this? Well, that was the <laughs> issue in terms of their employees. Um, they were just having trouble getting their employees engaged mm-hmm. around it. Uh, and, you know, in large companies in general, just getting employee engagement, especially for uh, companies that have a retail operation with you know, front-facing tellers and whatnot, right. it's important to keep them engaged. And for whatever reason, they just couldn't quite wrap their minds around it. Mm-hmm. So we they came to us, um, and I think this was in a, probably about 2015, and um, – we sort of uh, worked with our purpose and in, in turning it into a movement, really thought about what was going on in culture and society. And, you know, we were in the recovery from the recession, but mm-hmm. the truth is not everyone was recovering. And right. in fact, the majority of Americans we found uh, through research were uh, kind of in a situation of financial stress. Mm. So um, often with a movement, the thing you really need is an enemy and not like your competitor, the other bank. You need an enemy in the world, something a, a wrong that the brand wants to right, something mm. that that you can feel uh, that that's that's it's almost like a cause, uh, but yeah. but that your brand can solve. So we really saw this notion of getting people out of financial stress and bringing them to a place of financial confidence. That that was a noble cause that people at the bank, frontline tellers, everybody could care about get behind, and actually do something about in their everyday job. And actually probably care about for themselves personally as well. Exactly. Yeah. Some, some of this was, was yeah, was those folks, mm-hmm. uh, the, the everyday associates. So uh, we created a movement, um, Onward and Upward, or On Up for short. Mm. Uh, and that really kind of became all the content we created, the campaign we created, um, launched it in the Super Bowl. And uh, you actually join On Up. Uh, we started on the inside of the company with a, a, a program called Momentum on Up, and it was really getting the associates involved. And the great thing, the CEO got all the employees together in a stadium and launched the movement. Uh, and it's it's been fantastic. We've got actual measurable results. Uh, uh, associates actually, it, it, it's something where they feel like they're actually helping customers mm-hmm. with. So, so in that sense, it isn't a cause like CSR. It's more something that um, it's a cause that a brand can actually help consumers uh, do something. Yeah, and achieve. Yeah, yeah, something that comes to mind to me is um, sustainability as an example. Yes. So you may have a large company, uh, particularly challenging when it's over a large geographical area or multiple continents, tens of thousands of employees potentially, whatever it is. But not everyone in that company, because of the region they live in, their background, their age, is going to have the same commitment to sustainability as something that they care about at the same level. If the company has made a decision at the top that, using my example, sustainability is an important ethos for the company going forward from a profit standpoint, from a doing the right thing in the world standpoint, et cetera, et cetera, what the consumers care about, they need to make sure internally that their company inside out believes Mm -hmm. this and is committed in every way everyone's on board. So they do an internal, not just education, but really it's a type of marketing internally to get everyone on the same train before they go outside the company, right? So uh, first of all, I, I see that as an illustration of this, but also I guess it leads to a question. How do you think about the challenges when you can't assemble everyone in the stadium? Mm. 
of communicating those messages from the inside out when you do have such a large geographical distance. Yes, we live in the 21st century. There's a lot of technology that can transcend that. But how do you think about that in terms of being able to execute that in a way that isn't filtered by specific middle management and their delivery of that information and doesn't is isn't affected by the cultures of those particular regions or countries, changes in language mm-hmm. even. Uh, how do you think uh, or have you had to think in, in that kind of large scale? Absolutely. Um, we have two sort of uh, approaches. One we call movement outside, which is, you know, uh, external content communication experiences. Mm-hmm. But the other one's called movement inside. Uh, and as I mentioned with the SunTrust example, um, movements usually work better for companies when they start on the inside. So we've got clients that we only do movement inside. We have clients mm-hmm. that we only do movement outside. And we got clients that we do both, both for. One of our largest clients is Walmart, for whom we do movement mm-hmm. inside. And so you can imagine it's the largest employer in the world. And uh, we mainly work with them in the United States, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, a million and a half yeah. employees. So. Uh, to answer your question about sort of how do you um, in, in enroll and engage everybody, um, the thing that we tend to stress is like it's got to be a movement, not a mandate. So I think mm. the mistake that sometimes top leaders make is that they come in, they develop a purpose or a, a program, and they announce it and decree it. But as in the SunTrust example – People don't necessarily follow and participate. So I think what we've discovered is that you have to do things that actually get people to have a desire to care and participate. Um, So, for example, we represent a um, large health system uh, in the Baltimore area. It's called LifeBridge. Um, And we developed this sort of philosophy and idea. It's called Care Bravely. Uh, and it's about the hospital's commitment to hospital systems commitment. Really, um, they're they're in a lot of good neighborhoods. They're in mm. a lot of troubled so neighborhoods. Good. Yeah, they have a uh, a policy that they treat everyone. Um, and I think everyone in the uh, company um, they knew about it, but it hadn't been something that was touted and was something that they could really become proud of and a rallying cry. And mm-hmm. that's what Care Bravely is all about. So it's interesting. Um, we went in and sort of got top management on board. And that was great. But like, how do you spread it to everyone else? And I, th- I think what we found was that um, we had ambassadors that we, groups of them that were able to sort of identify. There were key influential folks within the company. Um, started talking to them about the idea and uh, they loved it. And before you know it, uh, throughout the company, we were having things like the doctor groups who were the most uh, skeptical saying, Mm -hmm. why haven't you guys brought this to us? Mm. Uh, So before you know it, we have more demand for sort of indoctrination, if you will, and to care bravely uh, than frankly right now we can handle. So I think if you've got the right idea and that it's spread more, um, as I said, as a movement rather than a mandate, that you can kind of get a natural flow going and kind of get everyone on board. So when you're looking at, to your point, creating something that's more of a movement rather than a mandate, you know, do you find or as part of your philosophy, is there incentivization in any way, like internally, like, you know, outside of just sharing 
that story or that cause that resonates with people internally? Or do you find like that that's not a good idea because you want people to just naturally? You mean like monetary incentive? Or or like it doesn't have to be monetary, but, you know, something. Other than, you know, tchotchkes, hats, (laughs) T-shirts, which, you know, obviously are media. Uh, No, we want uh, the whole idea is that people participate because they believe in it Mm -hmm. and they want to. Otherwise, your idea isn't right. Right. Hopefully, uh, one of the hallmarks of a good leadership is the ability to communicate grand ideas in an effective way, perhaps with the help of an agency such as yours, for example, uh, and and be able to make that impact on people that will bring them along. So, uh, well, I have a mandate right now, and that mandate is that uh, we have a tradition on this show, and uh, the mandate it has to do with the fact that it has to do with a snack we uh, guests often bring a snack for all of us to share. It's a wonderful way to break bread, get to know our guests a little bit better as to why they might have brought what they did. My mandate is that we do it now. So uh, <laughs> okay. I see a large bag. I think it should be a I don't movement. Know how full it, <laughs> I don't know how full it is, but it's it's big. So I'm thinking there's something big in there. That That is correct. Is this a big uh, idea in there? Uh, no, no, not really. <laughs> it's a gigantic Rice Krispie treat. <gasps> Oh, be still my heart. (laughs) Yeah, and I got to be honest with you, I don't have a great story as to why I uh, got it. It was sort of there, and it called to me. I love Rice Krispie treats, absolutely. And I figure it's an excuse. That's a good enough reason. (laughs) Imbibe sugar, you know, at the. Well, I feel there is nothing we need to do except eat it. Okay, well, let's do it. Let's go for it. All right, up next, you're going to hear more about movement outside and how you maintain authenticity and really do make change, make movement without just a bit of show. That's coming up next. Do you love to laugh? Do you love great interviews with a lot of heart? Do you like good stories? Do you like to hear about life? Well, good news, because if you listen to a show called Funny People Talking, all of that happens, right, Danielle? All of it happens. Every single thing you said on that list and more. Elsie, does any of it not happen? It all happens. Come on, Elsie. It really happens. Okay. Well, you should join us on Funny People Talking on Mouth Media Network. You can find us anywhere you can find a great podcast. And I know it's true because these people loved it. Only for a short time while they were listening to the show, Then Life Sucked. Listen to Funny People Talking. Okay, before we continue, Chip, I have to say that was absolutely one of the best snacks we've ever had on the show, just out of its sheer pop culture relevance and fun and hugeness and surprisingly fresh. Very fresh. Seemingly fresh. I know. I know. I, as you as you said earlier, I think maybe it was some of the preservatives. Who knows? But Allegedly. I'm, I'm hoping you guys enjoyed it. So. It was great. Thank you very Rice much for that. Rice Krispies keep us young. It was lovely. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so I, I have a question sort of inspired by the bigness of the, of the Rice Krispie tree. And that is, uh, when you, ha- when you need to go big with an outside movement, uh, or movement outside, I guess is how you, you call it. Yes. Um, 
and 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 obviously that really means that it's not disseminated inside the company as much as it's for the public or the consumer whether to invigorate consumer interest or for consumer acquisition i would imagine how one of the things that brands are often accused of is adopting a cause mm-hmm. uh and putting things in motion pouring money into it you know they might pour a hundred million dollars into promoting the cause so they can raise a hundred thousand dollars for a charity or or they it it doesn't it doesn't seem organic that they should care about this particular thing and it really looks like they're using the cause or the charity it doesn't seem authentic it doesn't seem organic it doesn't seem real it doesn't seem like there's really caring involved and it can backfire on the brand sadly even though they're really doing a nice thing who cares how it came about so my question for you is as you're going beyond just simple cause marketing and really trying to create a genuine movement let's call it what are some of the things that you think about both in terms of execution and actual content to try to avoid that pitfall? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question because I, I think with the brand purpose craze that we were talking about earlier, um, you see so many brands jumping on and uh, maybe even being uh, either asked or sometimes forced to do to sort of adopt mm-hmm. a, a purpose by their top management. My favorite example this year is um uh, th- that I use often it's uh, a planters brand you know the planters the nuts yeah. nut company um I think it's part of craft um anyway uh, they have a brand called nutrition uh which is sort of a, I don't know some kind of a nut snack that I think is supposed mm. to be better for you at any rate the reason I bring them up is that um they have adopted this purpose and cause and movement that's around gender pay equality and the reason that they thought that it uh, fits, if you go onto their website and look, and they've made commercials about this and donated money, as you said, uh, is because unequal pay is nuts. That was their um, that was their mm. connection. Oh wow, wow! So it's just you know an example of um, uh, like what a, a lot of brands are are stretch. doing. <laughs> I mean, you might have thought with nutrition, maybe something around nutrition might make more sense. Right, wellness. But um, I think sometimes brands, um, you know, they they decide on a higher purpose. They they want to pick something that they think might be controversial, um, and maybe they're picking it. I, look, I don't want to uh, attribute motives to anyone, but sometimes you have to. Wonder, is this really something that these people believe in and care about all the way up to the top? Right. Because if it's not, um, you know, consumers are so savvy these days, they can smell inauthenticity uh, in a minute. Isn't it part of the, Mm -hmm. I don't mean to interrupt you, but isn't it part of the expertise of either the in-house marketing or branding people or an agency to be able to see a little bit into the future and strategize and predict what what the pitfalls of a strategy could be. You obviously are going to always know. Um, you, you can guess wrong. You can you can even guess based on past experience and the new experience is different. But this, this example you're giving seems so obvious when you listen to it, just you describing it, that, that it, you would immediately like have shoehorning naysayers. In. Yeah, it's like shoehorning in a, a mm-hmm. you know. Well, I think there, you know, there are some folks out there either getting bad advice or ignoring 
good advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that this happens all the time. But let, let, let's talk about another example that's controversial, and I'd be interested to hear you guys' um, thoughts on it. Uh, this is the Gillette example. You know, they've sort of adopted this um, purpose around, I think, trying to rail against to- toxic masculinity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. Now, at the same time, um, their brand is in business freefall. I think P&G had to write down the brand two or $3 billion. Um, you know, they're being massively disrupted by brands like Dollar Shave Club mm-hmm. that are direct to consumer. Uh, and then as this is happening, all of a sudden, they get this notion about um, – Toxic masculinity. They've always been about the best a man can get and this real heroic celebrating men and all this kind of stuff. And so they they do kind of a left turn. So the question is, do they mean it? Mm. I think some people think that they do. A lot of people think that they don't, that it's a desperate brand that'll basically try anything. Do you know what it makes yeah. me feel like? Honestly, it sounds just like in Seinfeld when George Costanza said, if I do the opposite of what I've always done, maybe I'll have better luck. This and will he work. Tries it and it's, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounded like. They're like, well, this isn't working, so let's do the opposite. And I don't know that that's what happened, but I'm saying that it does reek of desperation. Yeah, it just feels like such a turn from the brand you know, and what they've been focused on. And to your point, the Dollar Shave Clubs and the Harrys of the world are, you know, doing so well. Um, As if they had an epiphany. Yeah, which I feel like is maybe not the case. All right. Um, so I think it's easy for brands these days to want to latch on to a controversial issue, um, but maybe for the wrong motives. Now, mm-hmm. a different case in point that, uh, again, controversial, be interested in you guys' take, is uh, Nike. With uh, Colin Kaepernick and uh, his, oh yeah, um, his uh, uh, kneeling and Black Lives Matter and his his um, uh, involvement in, in that whole movement, uh, which Nike and you know kind of celebrated in in uh, some people think a very inspiring way, some people not so much. I don't know. What did you guys think of that? I thought it was inspiring. I mean, I also think it's something that, you know, I guess. From my standpoint, you know, yeah, you can look at it as, okay, Nike capitalizing on, you know, this piece. But I also think that it's a movement that should be heard and yeah. given a bigger voice and to to showcase that inspiration, like with a brand that mm-hmm. is supporting athletes, you know, at, across like all walks of life mm-hmm. and also trying to use that and use their dollars in a way that they give that reach to something like that I thought was – you know, more noble in a way. I, I do agree with you, Amber, but I, I think about the dichotomy of two things. For example, post 9-11, that famous Budweiser ad, I believe it was Budweiser, with the the Clydesdales. Is that, is that mm. Budweiser? Oh, yeah, um, I, I remember. Post 9-11, and it was just very quiet, reverent mm-hmm. kind of spot. Mm. Obviously, it's advertising that brand. But there was something about the way it was executed that was genuinely like, we're Americans too. We care about this too. There's something that was done right about that, I think. Yeah, it's still business. As opposed to for me, just for me, uh, I saw a a digital billboard in Times Square, huge, huge one with a picture of Kobe Bryant for Nike uh, shortly after his passing. And it was just his picture, but he was holding a ball that had the Nike swoosh on it. And that's all it said. 
And what bothered me about the ad was that the Nike swoosh was showing. It Yeah, because it should have just been him, I, you know, and, you know, maybe – or like his jersey with his, you if, know. If they had said, for example, if the Nike swoosh was showing but at the bottom it just said he just did it, for example – I think we would have made that connection and go, oh, I bet that's Nike or something. That would have been more interesting. But by putting that in there, it was just me as a person walking, just a consumer looking at it. I said, oh, you jerks. You kind of used that and you made it into an advertisement. I mean, I I know you're paying reverence to him, but honestly, come on. Mm-hmm. It's not like the man was like a, you know, a, a – Nobel Peace Prize winner or anything like that where we're, you know, we have a, a need to celebrate him at all costs, et cetera, et cetera. And I know there's a lot of people that love him. I don't want to get controversial mm-hmm. here, but I'm saying that I was turned off by the ad is my point. Right. And I I think that ad was, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe it'll pay off for them. But I I, I question the sincerity mm-hmm. of that. But well, you know what I love about this whole conversation, though, is that, um, you know, when I started out in this business and even, you know, going back even like into the early 2000s, um, the issue I was always dealing with um, was consumer apathy. Um, People just, it's not that they hated ads or marketing. It's just that they had a shield up. They just just didn't care. Mm -hmm. Um, Indifferent. Yeah. That was the enemy. And it's interesting that we're moving into an era today where uh, their marketers are, are, are getting people to care, and you know, they they sometimes they're controversial. People are having discussions about, it, it, exactly, about it. Exactly, you know? exactly. And so, in that uh, sense, I feel like it's kind of a new, a new era in mm-hmm. marketing. Um, it's a lot different. Who do you feel like, as an example? You know, we've talked about a few examples that are more controversial or maybe didn't make sense. But are do you have a few examples or one or two of um, of brands that you feel like have done it? really have done it really well from or, an authenticity or, standpoint. Or pieces of work even that yeah, you've done that, that you point to and say, we think this is a great example of how you do it well. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a great example because it's a brand I worked on for years. Um, it's Jim Beam. Hmm. You know Jim Beam? The yep. bourbon? So Jim Beam had been in f- sort of free fall for decades. Um, it was, uh, uh, since 1795, it had been made the same way. It was the original bourbon. Um, and, uh, but it had gotten to the point that versus Jack Daniels, which isn't even bourbon, it was selling at like half the price for the same mm. size bottle. Uh, it's the only way they could move the product. It had become associated kind of with as more of a kind of a blue collar, older guy drink. Um, and, uh, you know, if you, if you don't have young people in the franchise of a, of a spirits brand, it just doesn't work very well because right. people in their twenties and thirties, they, you know, they drink more. Uh, so, um, it, I had done at various agencies had worked on the brand and done campaigns with rolling barrels and trying to explain to people that this really is bourbon and those other things aren't bourbon and, trying to give him a history lesson and just nothing, nothing would ever work. Um, anyway, the brand came to us at Strawberry Frog and uh, we really tried to get into the millennial mindset and um, had a very, very brave brand director on the business, a woman. Hmm. Um, and we decided after talking to a bunch of millennial men who were much more egalitarian uh, in terms of gender roles than their um, than their parents, that we were going to kind of take on the patriarchy. 
Hmm. And that we were going to invite women into bourbon. And this is like early. That. This is early. So I don't know if you guys saw the campaign, but we uh, almost got my client fired for two reasons. One, she green-lighted a campaign um, starring Mila Kunis. Oh, yeah. You know Mila? Mm-hmm. First ever – well, first of all, they never have a spokesperson before, and they certainly never – no, I don't think any whiskey brand had ever had a female spokesperson. Mm. Whiskey is the domain of men uh, until then. And so I don't know if you – it was a – um, and the, the campaign was I'm gonna called. Have to go back and, and watch. The campaign was called Make History, and uh, so we did in in many in many ways with that campaign. Uh, it it turned the business around. It won a gold Effie for for effectiveness. Um, but the big thing big thing is that really did invite women into the brand. It was a whole mm. market that they had ignored. And I, I guess you're probably aware that women drink a lot more brown spirits these days. Yeah. I mean, I myself drink bourbon and whiskey and scotch. So, you know, and other than that, red wine. I mean, so those are my spirits of choice. And this um, is a change from the whole sex in the city Cosmo um, right. era. When women are really uh, branching out a lot. Um, so it's been uh, a fantastic thing for the brand. And it's where uh, we saw an issue. Yes, maybe a little controversial, but it was an appropriate issue, um, and and one we, we I don't know we at the agency we had no doubt that it was going to work. I think some people at the client were a little well, ner- concerned, were nervous, um, but uh, it all worked out. So anyway, I hope that example yeah um, was right. Yeah, that's a fun one. What are some of the steps that you kind of think about as you're approaching with a, a prospective client or a new client that is thinking about or has their eye on? Um, creating a, a movement marketing campaign, whether or not they're just sort of dabbling in it and thinking about it or they've already made that decision. What are some of the processes you go through with them to decide on what kind of a campaign it should be, what the cause should be, and and move towards um, making them go forward? Yeah, so there is sort of a, a basic... Um, I don't know if you call them a series of questions or uh, sort of some stage gates that we go through, and I can tell you what they are. So you guys know normally like in marketing, there's like a positioning statement, and it's like for these consumers, the brands delivers this mm-hmm. because of – you know. so you, you guys know, know that. Um, we don't use that. Um, we have a series of five sort of questions. The first question that we ask is, um, what is the brand's dissatisfaction in the world? And we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, And it may sound like a simple and naive question, but uh, we usually find that that, that it's the thing that gets us out of thinking about them as competing in a category. Hmm. So Jim Beam, instead of thinking about – we didn't think about Jack Daniels. We thought about what out there in the world is something that the brand – the people who run the brand, the brand's consumers, are not happy with. And it's got to be something that's realistic for the brand to be able to address, mm-hmm. A. And B, it's got to be something that people in the company actually care about, as opposed to a manufactured concern. So with the SunTrust example, you know, it's kind of the fact that um, despite the supposed recovery, a lot of people have been left behind and nobody really talks about it. Um, so once you get to a dissatisfaction, then the second question we ask is, okay, what's the enemy? What is the nemesis out there 
that we are going to go up against. In the case of SunTrust, it is this financial stress that we could see was was just uh, plaguing people and causing them everything from economic problems to bad health. Mm. That very directly leads you to our third question, which is then, what is your stand? What are you going to stand for? What is your greater good in the world that realistically this brand could do to address the enemy and the dissatisfaction? And of course, in the case of SunTrust, it was like uh, trying to get people to a place of financial confidence. And then the last one is about action. What are you actually going to do to get people to care and participate? And this is your movement. I mean, then in the case of SunTrust, it was on up, which was really something they joined that was really a lot about financial literacy and financial education. So those are the questions we ask. They sound, I think, when you talk about them deceptively simple, it takes a lot to actually get clients on board to think about these things and to kind of get to a workable answer. So and to probably like tell them from a really honest place, you know, to really dig into that. Yeah. What have you learned about vetting a cause or or a charity or whatever um, that a brand might attach themselves to in order to make sure that it doesn't blow up later? And when you say cause, do you, so, so you mean like a charity or an organization, that kind of thing? Yeah. Or, or just even like the focus. Like, for example, when we're talking about like obviously SunTrust, like financial recession, um, you know, seems like a pretty like right. fairly like – you know, foundationally easy one to like go from, not easy, but, um, but yeah, are there, are there kind of, you know, checkpoints that you put in place? And, and if I may add on, I'll, I'll use a completely hypothetical example. Let, let's say, let's say for Jim Beam, primarily a male consumer demographic historically, uh, let's say that their cause was equal pay, a noble cause. Mm. But would it have alienated the men that was their consumer base versus while at the same time grabbing new consumer base with women would it have alienated them? So how do you think about both the validity of that of that cause and any dynamics that are not apparent to the average consumer, the average brand executive, while at the same time looking, since you're a strategy guy, looking at the strategy of Yes, this is a really cool cause, but here is the backlash or the whiplash that that could result to in your brand. Yeah, so there's sort of two sets of circumstances that I've seen, and I think either can work. So there's this situation where you've uh, you've got a brand and you need to find a way to get them to a cause or a movement that is um, everyone can embrace. Now, it's not our client, but a, a brand that's recently faced this is Chick-fil-A. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Of course. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, they had historically come from a place of uh, having an owner who had a lot of uh, sincere religious beliefs. They're always closed on Sunday. Uh, but they'd had a lot of bad press for comments he had made that were anti-LGBT and mm -hmm. I think some other stuff. Um since then, that brand has just exploded in growth. It's now got, you know, kind of a really professional set of managers in there who want to grow the brand and they've distanced themselves, I think, as much as they can from, I think, a lot of um, uh, the rhetoric that had been going mm -hmm. on. So they're trying to 
remain being seen as a purpose-driven company. They're closed on Sunday. They're but they're trying to distance themselves, I think, from the fringes of some of those issues that were um, that were turning a lot of people off. It seems to be working. Hey, every time I I see like there are lines out those doors from the Chick-fil-A's. I don't know what they put in that chicken, but (laughs) I've I've never really like partaken personally, but Mm -hmm. I I have to say that. So so people are into it. So there's one approach that tries to um, take your issue or cause and make sure that it is something that is um, as universally um, acceptable as possible. And that can work. There's another situation for brands like Patagonia and Nike in particular, uh, and I just heard somebody from Patagonia speak, and I, I read this from, I forget, I don't know if it's the CEO of Nike or a, somebody high up at Nike, where their attitude is, we're going to embrace a cause, even if it's controversial, that we believe in. And we don't care if some people don't like it, because if enough people love us, we're going to succeed. Uh, and it seems to be working for Nike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they seem to have really come out of this thing thriving. So I don't feel like I can cast shade or praise at either of those approaches. I think they can work. It's just got to be what is really right for your management, your team, um, in terms of what they believe in. But what is movement marketing or cause marketing in some cases? That's really more about brand building and 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 brand devotion than it is – like I don't think that there's a line outside the door of Chick-fil-A, for example, because of their uh, – the belief system that they are purporting. That I don't think people – it's just my belief. I don't have any – you know, intelligence to point to this, but Actually, I don't, I don't, I don't going, think that that is true. Right. Uh, and and I've, we've got data to prove it. So I told you we did a large scale study with the Reputation Institute. It just, uh, we're doing a big event to launch it in the beginning of March. Uh, but uh, we looked at 200 top brands in the, across like eight or nine industries, I think five or 6,000 people. And uh, we basically just asked people the degree to which they believe these brands were, uh, driven by a higher purpose. The overall story was that not many are perceived to be uh, driven by a higher purpose. Chick-fil-A is one that is. And one of the reasons that it does so well is that both Democrats and Republicans feel that way about them. Nike, on the other hand, um, does not um, receive as much bipartisan support as you you might imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now Um, we know why the chicken crossed the aisle. (laughs) (laughs) i didn't think of that but um (laughs) but so to to your to your point if you're hungry are you thinking about oh they have a higher cause probably not but when you think about the sea of sameness in the fast food category i think um you may gravitate yeah yeah chick-fil-a really stands out all right i think it's time that we talk a little bit less about strawberry frog and rice crispy treats and movement marketing and a little bit more about chip And so we will do that in a moment as we get to look at Chip as human with some personal questions right after this. Entrepreneurista, a woman who organizes and operates a business, taking on greater than normal financial risks in order to do so. One who has a drive, passion, and vision with an undying determination to succeed. She is fiercely motivated, ambitious, and competitive forging her own path to independence and success. That's an entrepreneurista. 
Through the conversations on the Entrepreneurista podcast, we want to celebrate failures, reflect on successes, and get unfiltered about what it takes to be your own boss. This is the Entrepreneurista podcast presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done and what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram with no filters, no limits, and plenty of surprises. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneurstapodcast.com. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. I'd like you to think back as early as childhood and think about the first thing that you remember since we were talking about causes and movements. What's the first thing that you remember caught your attention, like grabbed you as a fan or something that you noticed that made you really change your thinking and, and, and you went along with it. So it, it actually affected you and, you know, what it could be something in entertainment. It could be an idea that you remember made you go, I want more of that. Well, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I was a little kid in the late 60s, um, going into the 70s. And uh, it was the civil rights movement. I mean, which was happening before my little eyes, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, just seeing the, uh, the different sides that people were on, uh, and kind of knowing at a very young age, what side I thought I was on. Um, and it, it, uh, left a big, uh, impression on me about, um, I mean, speaking of, you know, movements, if you will, um, uh, and, and, you know, sort of at a very early age, feeling like I had to form an opinion mm -hmm. about where I stood. Uh, and one that, frankly, was different from members of my family. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, I don't know, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. pretty interesting. Do you see that that continues to impact us, not just the way you look at the world, but even actions you've taken? Oh, Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, as kind of a uh, member of the LGBT community as well, okay. growing up in the religious, you know, South, yeah. uh, in terms of things I did, um, I, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I, you know, I decided at a young age I was getting out of there. Uh, so I went to school away from there, and then day I graduated from Vanderbilt, day afterward I moved to New York. Uh, so I, I knew I wanted to be in a different environment around more diverse kind of people where I think people kind of thought more mm -hmm. the way I did. Yeah. Uh, and I've never, never looked back. So did you always see yourself going into the, the agency space? Like, no, 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 I didn't. Um, it, you know, I think, I think I thought I would either be an architect or a, a journalist hmm. when I was little, those things uh, were attracted to me. Uh, but I had an experience, uh, my junior year in college where, um, I needed a summer job and I went to the area where they have a job board and 
looked up there, and uh, a lo- the the big agency in town. This was Nashville, um, big ad agency in, in town. Um, had um, you know something up there saying, "Oh, we have summer intern uh, positions." Mm. And I just thought, um, "That sounds kind of interesting," but I don't know. I went over, interviewed, and before I walked out, I was like, "This is what I want to do." I just knew because of the vibe, the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, um, when I graduated, I got a job in advertising, and that's the only thing I've ever done since. Amazing, yeah. interesting architecture and journalism. I wonder what it is about those two things that's the through line. The only thing I can think of is you take – you make something from nothing, if you will. You 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 take pieces or ideas or components mm-hmm. and pull them together and then from there something is built that you put out there. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that Maybe is true. Sure, but... Both are creating stories in yeah. a way, you know. Oh, that's true, yeah. Because as an architect, you're, you're creating a space that people can experience – you're building very, something, you know, um, and same it's as kind a of conceptual, I right. guess, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and journalism, I guess, is all about um, storytelling, but but also the area of um, you know marketing and branding that I work in. We do a lot of investigation, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously in journalism, as you you well right. know, that you you have to do. True, and you are in journalism, yeah. sort of, <laughs> in, in a way, way. <laughs> in a way. Right. And are building things. Exactly. Mm. If you were to reflect on this discussion, um, what do you think perhaps if, if we gave you the last moment with the mic, what, what what would you want to say to the listener that was a leave behind, perhaps a final thought, whether it has to do with content, whether it has to do with movement marketing or, or any other point you'd like to make? Well, that I a little bit of what I, I mentioned before is that I get this sense that we're at a turning point in the world of marketing with something that's always been about selling people things that maybe they don't need um, to one where it's about people inside companies feeling like they have a responsibility to try and make a difference Um, and that there's at least a branch of marketing, if not all marketing, that I think is trying to join in and make that a thing. So, uh, so I don't know. I just, I feel like it's possibly a new day, a better day in marketing. Uh, and it's kind of one of the reasons I work at, at where I work doing what I do. Uh, um, so I don't know that that's the thing that really struck me about what we were talking about today. And uh, thank you. And how can people connect with you and the things that you're doing with Strawberry Frog. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm very easy to reach if you want to email me. It's just chip at strawberryfrog.com. Very simple. Um, and on social, is it at Strawberry Frog? Uh, yeah, abs- yeah it, it, no, actually, it's at Frogism, F-R-O-G-I-S-M. Mm. And I'm uh, at Chip Walker NYC. Awesome. All right. Well, Chip Walker, uh, head of strategy for Strawberry Frog. Correct. Thank you so very much for joining us. It really was uh, – I, I didn't know what to anticipate this conversation would be, but it ended up being just absolutely fascinating. It was so really great. Thank you very much, and uh, I wish you the best of luck as you continue to make a difference in the world with the work you do. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. That is it for this uh, really nice episode of Content is Your Business. I appreciate all of you listening, really. It means the world to us, and we'll see you again very soon. Until then, for Amber Mundinger. 
Thank you guys so much. Talk to you soon. I'm sorry I paused there. I don't know why I <laughs> gave you a little dramatic pause there, Amber. I liked I, it. That's right. I'm Mark Rico. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Bye. <laughs>